Father. As the line in the song goes, your goodness so great I can't understand. Father, you are good and you do good. Father, we thank you that you can do nothing but that which is good. You do nothing but that which is good for your people. Father, you mold us, you make us, you form us, you transform us. And we thank you for giving us your son. Father, we thank you for what your son has done. And we thank you for what your son is doing today for us, your people. And Father, we thank you for what is to come when your son returns on the clouds to judge the world in righteousness and gather his people to himself. Father, there are so many things that we are thankful for that we don't remember to thank you for. And Father, forgive us for our forgetfulness. But Father, we do thank you for your kindness, your goodness, your generosity. Your love for us, even when we have been unloving. Father, we pray for we pray for our family members who are not saved. Father, we pray for our siblings. We pray for spouses. We pray for parents. Father, we pray for children. We pray for grandchildren. Father, I pray. I pray for Simon and Oliver. Father, I pray for Caleb and Kate and Ellie and, and Crosby. And I pray for Colin and Gracie and Evan. And I pray for. I pray for Christian and Tyson and Eva. And I pray for Elliot and Owen and Austin and Ian and Joshua and Bennett and Abigail. Father, 19 souls who share the blood of my wife and I, and I pray, Father, that you sweep them into the kingdom. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this, this, this sermon is going to be the first of a very short series, probably as short as a series can be and be a series. It's a series of two sermons. And it's going to be a series looking at really the same account of what happened in Scripture, but it's going to happen from two different perspectives. And the overarching thing that I want to look at in these two sermons is, is really a doctrine, and it's a doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And not merely just the bare doctrine, but the practical nature of how the sovereignty of God helps us in our lives every day. Because doctrines, unless they are practical, unless they can help us, are mere exercises in academics. But every doctrine in the Bible is not an exercise in academics. It's an exercise in how to live our life and how to relate to the living God and how to, how to relate to his son whom he sent to save us. I'm going to be starting in Isaiah 14, but that's not where we're going to be because what I'm going to do is I want to look at prophecy that's fulfilled. The prophecy that's given to us is in Isaiah 14. The fulfillment of the prophecy is in two different parts of our Bible. It's in 2 Kings and in Isaiah. And what we see in, in the fulfillment of the prophecy is really 
two perspectives. <clears throat> we see how God works from our perspective, what we can see, what we do, what we are responsible for. But there's another perspective on the fulfillment of the prophecy that we don't see. It's sort of a behind the divine veil issue. We don't have that very often in Scripture. We see it in Job, for instance. We see in Job what happens in the heavenlies. We see Satan's encounter with God. Job didn't see that. Job lived in his here and now. Job lived in what happened in those, 40, those 42 chapters of Job. Job didn't know what was going on in chapters 1 and 2. And it's the same thing with this fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 14. Isaiah, Hezekiah, the people of Israel, they know what's going on on the front end, but they don't know what's going on behind the divine veil. Now next month, Lord willing, if I preach next month, I will go behind the divine veil in Isaiah chapter 10 and look at this. But today we're going to look at, at the account that's in Isaiah 37 that's the fulfillment of what we see in Isaiah 14. And first I need to, I need to talk about defining terms. You might say, well, why do you have to define sovereignty? Well, I have to define it because one time when my wife and I spent the weekend in a women's prison, I gave a message and mentioned the sovereignty of God a couple of times, and after I got done, one of the female prisoners came up to me and said, you kept using this word, and I don't know what you're talking about. You said, you said, sov, and she couldn't pronounce it. I said, sovereign? Yeah, she said, I have no idea what you're talking about. What do you mean? So I don't want to assume that everybody knows what I mean when I say the sovereignty of God or that God is sovereign. What that means is God is almighty, all-powerful. He rules. He has total control. Nothing happens outside the scope of His eternal decree. He has a plan. He has human history in mind. Now, we know that God has existed outside of time before there was time, and now He inhabits time. But God not only knows what's going on, but He knows what's going on because He has decreed what's going to go on. That's the ultimate sovereignty. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. We know Scripture talks about no one can stay His hand. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 found out just how sovereign God is after he spent some time being a vegetarian out in the field. And then he confessed who God was and what God was like. He knew that God was almighty and all-powerful. We know that men and women in our age think that they're sovereign that they have all this power. Politicians think they have all this power. Businessmen think they have all this power. No, they don't have power. <laughs> they cannot do whatever they please at the end of the day. They can only do what God ordains that they do. And Herod found out what that was like in Acts chapter 12. He did not give glory to God. For the fact that he was Herod because of God ordaining and placing him there. He did not give thanks to God. And what happened? God strikes him dead and he becomes worm food. That is sovereignty when God strikes a man dead. I cannot say to anybody, thou shalt die right now. God can and God has. You do not mess with the God of this Bible. Okay, let's go to Isaiah chapter 14 and let's look at the prophecy. 
Prophecy can only be fulfilled if the one issuing the prophecy has the power and authority to fulfill the prophecy. Isaiah 14, verse 24 says this, The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? We know from history that there was an issue between the Assyrians and God's people. The fulfillment of this prophecy is, again, in two places. It's in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, and it's in Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. So I'm going to start in Isaiah 36 and just give an overview of what's going on here. The, the meat of what I want to talk about will be in the last half of chapter 37. But just to summarize what is going on here, you can see in verse 1 of chapter 36, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. All right. So, the king of Assyria comes. We see Scripture always... Doesn't Scripture talk about the enemies coming from the north in the Bible? Well, that's what's going on here. Working his way down. He's coming against Judah. He's already taken, he's already taken the northern kingdom at this part. He's already taken Samaria. And he's coming up against the fortified cities of Judah, and one of the cities in Judah is Jerusalem. We have to keep that in mind here. That's essential to the story. Verse 2 says he came with a great army. How great was the army? It doesn't tell us how great the army was at this point. We know by the end of chapter 37, at least to some degree how great the army was, but we don't know how great the army was. Was it... 1,000, 20,000, 50,000, 100,000, we don't know yet, but we're going to find out at the end of the story. Anyway, the king of Assyria comes, and then in verse 4, one of the government officials for Assyria starts laying out the way it's going to be to God's people. He starts, in essence, this, this series of trash-talking, what we would call in our age. And he's, he's really saying, you guys should not be trusting what Hezekiah, your king, is saying to you. Because your king is not as powerful as my king. Verse 7, But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. And he proposes this wager here. It's interesting, you get down to verse 10, look what, he, he's, look what he's quoting the king of Assyria as saying in verse 10. He says, Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. You go, Why would the Lord say to, to the king of Assyria, go up against this land and destroy it? You could question, did the Lord even say that? Or is this just more bluster, more... False, false intimidation against God's people. Wait a month. We're going to find out. Okay. Well, then we've got a response from the three representatives of Hezekiah in verses 11, in verse 11, because they, they want, 
They want the Rabshakeh, the representative of Assyria. Don't talk in the language of the people because they might understand what's going on and they're going to be afraid. And the Rabshakeh says, well, wait a minute here. See, you want to talk about trash talking? This is in your Bible. Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? He's, he's laying it out here. King of Assyria doesn't mess around. You can look at history. The king of Assyria did not mess around when he took cities. Then you've got more talking from the Rabshakeh starting in verse 13. And it goes all the way through verse 20. He gets done. What do the three men do? They don't say anything. They go back and report to Hezekiah. Chapter 37. He gets told the words of the Rabshakeh, the last verse of 36. Hezekiah hears it. He tears his clothes, covers himself with sackcloth, and goes into the temple. He goes into the house of the Lord. He sends Eliakim, who is one of the three guys. He sends the secretary, Shebna, and he sends the senior priests to Isaiah. And they give a report about what Hezekiah says in verse 3. And it ends verse 4, Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Verse 5, The servants of King Hezekiah come to Isaiah. Isaiah responds, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid. Let me stop there. How important is it in our Bibles when our Lord says to us, Do not be afraid. He can only say that because He's sovereign. Whenever we see, do not be afraid or fear not, we don't need to be afraid because when He says don't be afraid, He has good reason to tell us don't be afraid. When He tells us to not be afraid, when He tells us to fear not, He knows what's going on and He not only knows what's going on, He's going to take care of His people in what's going on. We look at things through this lens of, man, it's crazy. What can we do? We can't do anything. Look at, how, look at how crazy our world is. We like to say how crazy our world is now. How do you think crazy to think the world of, of God's people was here when you got a great army coming down at you like this? You can, you can get into the realm of hopelessness here. You can get into the realm of despair here. But it's interesting you look at the response here, do you see a military-based response in Isaiah's response in these, in these verses? Verse 6, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own hand. The response is not, we're going to win this battle. The response is, the response is, the king's going to hear something on the grapevine and go home. And when he gets home, he's going to die. That's the response. Okay, well, we see the, the account continues. The government official, the Rabshakeh, returns. Okay, and there's, they're fighting on another front as well. But then he starts up the talk again. And, and it continues on through verse 13. 
Well, the report of all of this and, and, and the letter from the, from the king of Assyria delivered by the Rabshakeh gets to Hezekiah. And now is where I want to spend the rest of our time in the, in the balance of chapter 37. Hezekiah gets the letter. He reads it. And he goes back into the temple, into the house of the Lord. And he takes the letter, the scroll, how, however it was, lays it out before the Lord. And he prays. Listen to the prayer. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline Your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open Your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Lord. Save us. I read that prayer out loud. Timed it yesterday. 38 seconds. He didn't feel the need to pray for 20 minutes. He prayed his nation be saved in 38 seconds. Does God hear brief prayers? Specifically here, does Jesus hear brief prayers? We know from elsewhere in Isaiah, the Lord of hosts, Jesus is the Lord of hosts. We know that Jesus is the one who made heaven and earth. He's confessing to Christ. That's what he's doing here in this passage. And he says, he says to this sovereign God, incline your ear. We talked about that in the past. Bend your ear down and hear me. Now, do we know that, do, do we really believe that in the heavens, God has to physically bend down to hear us. No, that's from, that's from Isaiah's perspective. But he, wants, he, he says this because he wants the Lord to hear him. What else does he say? He says, open your eyes. He knows that the Lord's eyes are open. It's, it's, not, like, it's not like the Lord is in the heavens with his eyes shut and can't see anything that's going on. But he wants, he wants a response. We pray from our perspective. God, hear me. Incline your ear. God, see me. God, listen to me. Hear what I'm saying. Isn't that what we do when we pray? And we only pray because God is sovereign. If God is not sovereign, why would you want to pray? We only pray because we are asking God to do what only God can do. You've got this little band of people in Judah, in the city of Jerusalem. The fortified cities have already been taken. A massive army is coming against Jerusalem. A massive army that Hezekiah knows. Those things that, that the Rabshakeh has said about these other cities and these other kings, those weren't lies. Those had happened. The word gets out. The grapevine existed back then, just like it does now. Hezekiah knew the king of Assyria wasn't kidding. King of Assyria didn't take prisoners. 
So he asks, the Lord of hosts, help us, save us. For this purpose, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Lord. Now we know, people tell us all the time, if God would only prove himself to be real, then I'd believe. You can hear it wherever you go. Friends, family, campus, work, wherever. Even when the kingdoms of the earth know that God alone is Lord, they still say no, don't they? We can look back at the example of Rahab. Think about what Rahab said to the men. We've heard about your God. They know, they knew about the God of Israel. They had heard, and how many people in that city wall believed? Rahab. They knew the reality. They knew that the Lord alone is God. And one woman, a prostitute, responds. People can't say they don't know. We know from Romans 1, everybody knows who God is and what God is like. But to display this action here, Hezekiah wants God's glory on display for all the kingdoms of the earth. Egypt. You think he wanted Egypt to know who God was? Yeah, I think so. So he prays. Verse 21. Isaiah sends to Hezekiah with a response. Thus says the Lord. Hezekiah is going to listen when thus says the Lord. The God of Israel. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. Quote, She despises you. She scorns you. The virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you. The daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord. And you have said, With my many chariots, I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I plan from days of old what now I bring to pass that you, this is about the king of Assyria, not Hezekiah, that you, Hezekiah, should make, I mean you, Sennacherib, should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Does not that last sentence affirm what has already been said to Hezekiah in the first response from Isaiah? Sennacherib's going home. He's going back there. And when you put a hook in the nose and a bit in, some, in, in the mouth, there's an imagery there of a horse. 
the Lord is going to ride Sennacherib back home. But let me continue before I make more comments on this. And this shall be the sign for you. Now, you here in verse 30 becomes Hezekiah. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that, then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherazar, his son, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Israel didn't shoot one arrow. Israel did not engage in one man with hand-to-hand combat. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand. The Lord answered. Now it's interesting here. This passage and this whole account really deals in the realm of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Let's not... That's where we fall into doctrinal error, is when we emphasize one at the expense of the other. You can look at the response that goes to the king of Assyria. Verse 26 and verse 27. Why did the king of Assyria win all those battles? Because the Lord determined it from long ago. Did the king of Assyria thank God for those military victories? Of course not, he didn't. But the only reason that the king of Assyria won all those military battles, even against God's people, was because God had decreed that he would win. Do you think the king of Assyria really cared? <laughs> no. But he wants, he, he really wants the king of Assyria to know, hey, you may not be one of my people, but you only have and can do what you do because I have given you the victory. And we'll see that more when we get to, to chapter 10 next month. But you go on farther beyond that. There's a word there in verses 28 and 29 that gets used twice. You're raging against me because you, you're raging against me because you have raged against me. Does that sound like a psalm? Psalm 2. Let's look at Psalm 2. Psalm 2 starts, Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Why do the nations rage? Isaiah 37 says, Because you have raged against me. You're raging against me. Psalm 2 is talking about guys like the king of Assyria. Look at the divine response to the nations raging against kings in verse 4 of Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Other translations there will say that the Lord scoffs, the Lord mocks, or the Lord even taunts. You go, well, that's not very godlike. It's very godlike. You've got Almighty God who created the heavens and the earth just by the, the will, his own will. Jesus, they, he speaks all this into existence. And the nations think that they can tear down this God. He's laughing at the foolishness of the kings, the ridiculousness of the kings thinking that they are more powerful than the God of Israel. Verse 5, Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for Me, I have set My King on Zion, My holy hill. We get back to this issue of you don't mess with the God of Israel. Kings have always tried. People in our day try. Maybe we don't know kings who rage. But how many people do you know Mock our God. Think we are fools for what we believe. They think we're idiots for what we believe. They, they, think, they think, how can anybody who has a right mind believe what you guys believe? You know, you, I'm, I'm sure Craig still encounters that out on the campus. Um, I mean, my, my wife and Crystal Wordlaw encountered that on the campus eight years ago out at UTSA. Nothing has changed. It's not just kings that rage against God, it's people. Maybe they're not kings. Maybe they're, they're people like you and me. They, they have these everyday jobs. They, they, they do this. Maybe they, they flip burgers. Maybe they sit at a computer all day, but they still rage against God. And God will still laugh at them because people who think they can overthrow the living God will find out that's not the case. The very mouth that they use to blaspheme God with. The brain that gives them the words to put together. They will not acknowledge that it is in the living God against whom they rage that they have their life and their being and their breath. God is sustaining their heart and their lungs in order that they can blaspheme Him. Why? Because our God is kind and gives people time to repent. Did the king of Assyria have time to repent? You bet he did. Because what you see at the end of the chapter where he's worshiping and his sons kill him, the Scripture compresses time greatly there because from the time he left and turned, turned tail and ran until his sons killed him was 20 years. He had 20 years to repent. And he didn't. He knew who God was from that passage. You, can you imagine 185,000 people 
Okay, drive mile and a half that way and fill up that big old building three times. The Alamo Dome. 185,000 people. They wake up in the morning and they're dead. How many survived? I don't know. But I know the king did. What kind of impression would that make on you? you got 185,000 dead bodies there and they were alive the day before. People say, I want to know God is real. I think God proved Himself to be real there. The angel of the Lord. I'm going to maintain when we see the angel of the Lord, that is likely a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes and takes care of business. Answers Hezekiah's prayer. But you'll notice, even though this was all prophesied, Isaiah 14, even though it was prophesied earlier in Isaiah 37, look at verse 21 in Isaiah 37. Why did the Lord respond the way He did? Because you prayed. Because you have prayed to Me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. That's why all of this happened. A man prayed. Even as it had already been prophesied that it was going to happen. God had already sovereignly said, I'm going to make it happen. And how did God make it happen? God made it happen because of the desperate prayer of a king, Hezekiah. We want things to happen. We want God to change things. We want God to change people. But you've got to ask God to change people. You've got to ask God to do things. We have to ask God to do that which is supernatural. There's not one person in this room who can raise a spiritually dead man to life. You can't convince somebody and it happened by the power of your persuasive abilities. None of us, not even the YouTube apologists can do that. but we can proclaim the Word of the living God and God will raise the spiritually dead. You who are dead in your sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2, have been raised to life like the dry bones in Ezekiel 37. When we pray, we pray because we want God to do that which man cannot. We pray I named 19 grandchildren in my prayer. I can't save any of them. God can. And God doesn't have to wait until their 18th birthday to save them. Now two of them are over 18 in their 20s. God can save them. Today, in Michigan, 1,600 miles from here, because God is God. Our God is the God of Isaiah 37. Do we believe that though? Do we believe that God can do the equivalent of something supernatural of smiting 185,000 Assyrians? Or is that just then? No, our God does not change. We may not see 185,000 Assyrians die but we could see a person saved 
today. We could see adult children saved. We could see spouses saved. Why? Because God is sovereign. But God does things by means. This is where we have to take both into account. This passage talks about the absolute ability of God to do that which man can't. But it also talks about God not doing that which man can't until man did what man can do and man can pray. In, in, in order to preserve certain doctrines, some try and minimize the sovereignty of God because they, they want to make sure that they preserve the freedom and the responsibility of man. Or you can go off the other side. Well, God is sovereign, so Isaiah 14 says He's going to take care of the king of Assyria. I'll just sit back and wait for it to happen. No, that's not the way Scripture speaks. Scripture speaks of both of these being true. We know, we know that Abraham received a promise about sand on the sea and stars in the sky. And maybe you believe you know that your children, your spouse, your parents, your friend, your sibling is one of those sands on the sea or stars in the sky. That doesn't give you license to sit back and do nothing and never pray, never tell them any of the truth. And then, then what else? Pray again. <laughs> tell them again. And then what? Pray again. And pray again. And pray again. Here, he got an answer with a 38-second prayer. Maybe we have to pray for 38 years. Maybe we pray for 38 years and die, and we don't have an answer. And then God saves your son after you die. But based upon your prayers. But it's essential. Verse 21 is essential. Because you have prayed. That's how Isaiah 14 became fulfilled. Because a man prayed. We're not fatalists here as we talk about the sovereignty of God. We don't, we don't sit back and think that God doesn't use means. Some people do. I think they're wrong. Jesus prayed. Paul prayed. Paul was a guy who believed in the sovereignty of God, if you read Paul's writings. <laughs> but Paul prayed, and Paul worked. Paul did things. Paul was not passive. These apostles, they were all active. As much as they may have believed in the sovereignty of God and they may have believed in predestination and they believed in election and they believed all that stuff, you know what? They still went. They still prayed. They still told people the truth. It's all true. Now, in our, in our realm, in our society nowadays, I, I, don't, I don't know how many times you hear this. You hear it on, on all the video clips. If you watch the news, you'll see it happen. When something... When something bad happens, people say, well, it happened for a reason. Okay, what reason? Tell me your reason. Without God, tell me your reason why that happened. I mean, you see, you see when, when somebody has one of these bad injuries and then you see them 
posting all these tweets from all these other professional athletes. It's amazing how many times you see the praying hands in there. What are they praying for? And to whom are they praying? Are they praying to a God who can answer their prayers? Are they praying to a God who says, you know what, for me to answer your prayers, this is conditional. God does not listen to the prayers of sinners. Why should God answer the prayers of the wicked? But you see these praying hands, these, this emoji. They're praying. To whom are they praying? Are they praying to a God who can actually do anything about it? Oh, this injury is so bad. I don't know if this athlete's going to be able to participate again. Can their God make can their God do anything about the condition of that athlete? Or are they just praying to the wind? Everything happens for a reason. What reason? We know that God causes all things to work together for the, those, for the good of those who love Him or are called according to His purpose. We have a reason. We have a purpose for what is bad. We have a reason. We have a purpose to deal with that which is evil in our lives. It doesn't say in that passage, God says that all things are good. He says he works together all things to, he works together all things for the good. The crucifixion of Christ was the most evil act ever performed in human history. But did he work it for good? Yes. Were the men who crucified Christ responsible for their wickedness? Yes. But it was worked for good. My application on this is all the stuff that's happening in your life that's not good. Maybe you're in a bad marriage. Maybe you're in a bad relationship with your parents. Maybe you're having financial trouble. Maybe you've got this, that, or the other thing that's bad. Yes, everything does happen for a reason. And there's a reason that God has you in that season right now. I don't know what he's trying to teach you in this season. Maybe he's trying to teach you how that you need to pray more. Maybe he's trying to teach you you just need to trust more. Maybe he's trying to teach you that we need to work harder. It can be it can be not without the realm of possibility that you're a Christian in a bad marriage and you just sort of give up. There's nothing more I can do. No, is is that really what God would have you do? If you're a husband, can you stop loving your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her because your wife is rebellious? No, you can't. Well, you can, but you shouldn't. You can't just, you can't just fall back on the sovereignty of God. Well, my marriage is this way because God has decreed it. That's fatalistic. Well, I'm in financial trouble because it's in God's plan. Well, it is in God's plan, but God didn't tell you to do the things perhaps that got you in financial trouble. Okay, But maybe, you can't, maybe you're in financial trouble by, by reasons outside your scope. Maybe you lost your job. I get it. But what are you supposed to do with it? Okay, now we just, do we just sit back with our feet up? Okay, God, get me out of the financial trouble. Or would God have you pray about getting out of financial trouble? And would God have you pray and get a job? Yeah. Because you have prayed, 
Because you have prayed, prophecy was fulfilled. Maybe because you have prayed, your marriage is healed. Your relationship with your sibling is healed. Because you have prayed, maybe these government officials that we don't like what they do, maybe they will change. Don't we have a charge to pray for those in authority? Are we praying enough even for those people in authority who are on the wrong side of your political fence? Are you praying for Joe Biden? Can God use a man who's not a Christian in a Christian way to fulfill God's plan? Yes, that it was Cyrus. Read later on, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 45. Used a pagan king, prophesied over 100 years before Cyrus was born. Are we praying enough for Joe Biden? Are we praying enough for Greg Abbott? Okay, Joe Biden, nominal Catholic at best. Are we praying for him? Are we praying for him to be converted? But are we praying for him, even as he may be where he is, to do that which pleases the Lord? Are we praying for Greg Abbott, another Catholic? Are we praying for our mayor, a Jew? Are we praying for our city councilman who represents this area, our practicing homosexual? Are we praying for our government leaders the way Scripture tells us to pray for them? Maybe things haven't changed because we're, we're not praying enough. Maybe things haven't changed because we're not loving people enough. And I'm just not pointing outward. I'm talking to the guy in the pulpit too. You've got this passage where prophecy gets fulfilled. You've got this passage where a wicked king gets told, you only have what you have and have conquered what you've conquered because I determined that you were going to have what you have and conquer what you conquered. You have this passage where 185,000 people die at the hand of the angel of the Lord. What do we take away from this? We take away from this that we live on this side of the window. Isaiah 10 in a month is going to go behind the divine window. But we live here on the human side of the window. We know God has a plan. But we have commands to obey. We have responsibilities as God's people. Hezekiah knew that he should pray. Ask the Lord for help. We have the king of, king of Assyria saying earlier in the passage, well, you know, Egypt's not going to help you right now. He's right. <laughs> you got this little band of people in Jerusalem. All the fortified cities of Judah around Jerusalem. I shouldn't say all of them. Many, at least, have been taken at this time. And you've got this great army that had at least 185,000 and won because 185,000 died and the king didn't. But you've got this great army and God takes the prophecy and fulfills it through the prayer of a mere man just like you and me. Just like you and me. Just like Elijah was a man just like us. Elijah prays and it doesn't rain for a few years. And he prays and then it starts raining again. 
The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Let's not go off one side or the other on this issue of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. But at the end of the day, God is sovereign. And and what does something else that makes a difference in our lives about God being sovereign? Your assurance is based in the sovereignty of God. All of those times in your Bible when the Lord says, I will. God is said to have said, I will, in the ESV, 1,386 times. How many of those will He not do? Not a one of them. 86 times, God says, I will not. If He says, I will not, will He go ahead and do it anyway? Absolutely not. Jesus is quoted as saying, I will, 86 times. And all of the I wills and I will nots have their foundation in the sovereignty of our God. Because when He says, I will, He will. His promises are not like ours. Think of all those times when we've said in response to somebody, oh, I will pray for you, and we didn't because we forgot. Okay. Or, I will make sure we come over for a meal and we forget. 1,386 times, God says, I will. That means He's got 1,386 I wills in addition to the, 80, to the 86 that Jesus says, I will, and He will. When He says, I will never, that means I will never. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you believe that? That's where your assurance is. Your assurance is in Jesus. It's not in us. We just have to keep our arms wrapped around Jesus by faith. In order to have the I wills mean something and have the I wills come to fruition. You think about what he says to the churches in Revelation. To the one who conquers, I will. The promises of judgment, I will. We can trust our God. Absolutely we can trust our God. Absolutely we can trust our Jesus. The Father and the Son are one. All of those I wills, the 1,386, when the Father says I will, the Son means I will too. The Son and the Father are one. Do you trust the sovereignty of God for your assurance? Far too often, and I understand, far too often, people wrestle with their assurance because their assurance is based upon their performance. And I, and I get it. I get it because Scripture does call us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. However, it is God who works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure, right? How about our assurance? Is our assurance based upon our trust in the sovereignty of Christ, our Savior? 
Is our assurance based upon the fact that we know that Jesus is praying for us today? He's interceding for us today. Jesus doesn't save partially. Jesus saves to the uttermost. Jesus saves absolutely. Jesus loves you. Isn't that enough? Jesus loves His sheep. Isn't that enough? Man and woman, adult and child, Jesus loves His sheep. Do we really believe it? When we wrestle with our assurance, it's because perhaps we really don't. And Jesus says again, when you're having that wrestling match, come unto me, still, you who labor and are heavy laden. That's not just an evangelistic idea. He will give you rest. And He will give you rest for your soul. He will give you rest in a pasture that you as a sheep have no other pasture like it. But it's all founded upon the God whose eye is on the sparrow. And if His eye is on the sparrow, and the sparrow does not bear his image, how much more is his eye on you? Do we know he's watching us? Do we know that we have a good shepherd who has power and authority to keep his people in the sheepfold? Let's pray. Oh, Father. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign. Father, we thank You that You are the promise keeper. We thank You for all of those I wills and all of those other times in Scripture which maybe don't have the words I will in our English Bibles, but they mean the same thing. Father, all of those promises, we know that all of the promises made up until the life of Your Son are yes and amen in Your Son. Father, we thank You for Your Son who fulfills all of those I wills. And we pray this in His name. Amen.